the Quaredev Midcast with your host Adam Matwatch. So, uh, let's jump into uh, welcoming our two guests today. Uh, you have seen a short bio of them on the meetup, um, but let's give a short introduction who they are and why they are here. Uh, our first guest is Phil Royston. Um, he has a broad experience in um, IT uh, more than 30 uh, years ago when he joined the uh, IT. Uh, and his first contact with formal testing came unexpectedly in 2002. He ended up uh, being the owner of a uh, very big uh, company, Tesena. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, uh, correctly, Perfectly. so maybe Phil later on will correct Perfectly. me. Perfectly. Great. Uh, and I have personally met uh, Phil on the last Eurostar last year when uh, he and I were, were uh, speakers and uh, he was one of the most inspiring, if not the most inspiring speaker to me. So I thought that it's a great occasion to invite him here and share his knowledge uh, about uh, being great, uh, building great uh, teams uh, of testers. Uh, our second guest is uh, Jorgen Lund, and sorry Jorgen if I'm not pronouncing something uh, here correctly, so also you can correct me uh, later if I'm uh, wrong. Um, good enough. He... Good enough, good enough, that's great. I work in Danish company, but always with, with names from uh, Denmark uh, or any Scandinavian country, I have some issues and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but probably you guys could have the same problems with Slavic names. Uh, okay, so uh, Jorgen I also met on last Eurostar. Um, he was one of participants of my, of my talk there and uh, it was after the talk I had very insightful discussions about building great testers, how to build great teams and uh, I, I, I thought that uh, it would be a really great occasion to talk with you two guys here about building great teams, uh, developing great testers and how to um, how to be a better tester in the future, especially that even right now, a lot of people are very interested into joining the uh, testing domain and building great teams. So uh, let's get to the, to the main part of today's meeting and I will give my voice to you, Phil. Just go on and start today's meeting. Okay, so I don't have to unmute then, no, no. you can yeah. hear it. Okay, fine, okay. Um, this is a little bit of a unique experience for me because I'm doing this without a slide deck and I haven't done any sort of presentation for 25 years, I think, without PowerPoint helping. So, so I'm live and naked today. So I want to talk about building teams and I think I want to start with an anecdote. Um, back in 2007, um, there was a, a big coal banking project happening in Bratislava in Slovakia and they'd already gone through three or four test managers. They were getting closer and closer to the testing phase and they were looking for another test manager and I met somebody for a coffee. They mentioned this project and I said, oh, I'd love to do a project like that because that's the sort of person I am. I, I love these big challenges. So I joined this, um, joined this huge crazy project which has already been running for five years and I said, okay, where are we at with testing? Do you have a testing team? And said, no. Do you have a testing environment? No. Do you have whatever? They didn't have anything. And I said, when are we starting testing? And said, oh, in two months. I said, okay, great. And I was there for three years in total. 
and I uh, built from scratch a testing team. And the testing team at the max, the one I was responsible for at least, was about 120 people. And as I was leaving, people were saying, you know, Phil, that was the best team ever. That was a great experience. And people were saying, you've achieved so much. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing at the time. And it happened, it was only many years later that I started to understand what had happened. Um, it was a huge thing. And I couldn't, I didn't have a, possibly a chance to understand it all on my own. So I found people who are more competent, let's say, and I started treating them, teach, uh, treating them as subject matter experts. And I was doing one-to-ones with those people, asking for their opinions, asking for their advice, asking to give information. Those people later became uh, team leaders. So we had several teams within the, within the testing team. And the other thing that was there was, this was such a huge, crazy project that we all had sort of a common enemy. We had a mission, which was to put this stupid system live. It was 30 applications we had to integrate together. And it was a, a call to action. And because I really, really, really believed it was possible, and most people said, no, this is never going to happen. But I really, really believed it was possible. I managed to convince a lot of people on the team also that it was possible. And I used to do one-to-ones. And then I used to invite the whole team, and I used to do... Winston Churchill type speeches, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them, whatever. And, and, and people gradually said, you know, this guy keeps repeating this, so maybe he's serious. Yeah, maybe we'll get on board with this. Yeah? And, and the other thing I was doing a lot of was I didn't tell them what to do. I just said, we need to test it. Yeah? We need to write test cases. But I didn't say write test cases like this. I didn't say do this, do that, because I just didn't have time. It was an accident. But what I did was I, I kept going and talking to people one-to-one -one and they were saying, yeah, I've got this and I'm doing this. And, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the cash desk, I, I can't uh, do the uh, initial uh, input of the cash balance. And I said, why not? Because I've got this defect here. And I said, okay, but that defect's blocking you from all of the testing. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went away immediately across the other side of the bank, found a developer who should fix that defect and sat with the developer until he fixed it. And I came back and said, it's fixed, it's deployed, you can continue testing. So I was a facilitator, I was an enabler. And the other thing I did was to keep management away from the testing team. So the testing team were in a bubble, they were safe. They could get on doing their work and no managers ever came to annoy them. If a manager ever needed to know anything, basically they had to come to talk to me. So the whole testing team felt safe. And within that safety, they, they really gelled as a team. Of course, there were some people who were problematic and it didn't, didn't work 100%. But the re really, really, the team came together. And it was only many, many years later, I was sitting on a, on a half-day training course, which was about tribes. And the lady, very, very, very good training course, I have to say. And the, and the training course said that, um, that uh, tribes is basically the way we evolved as a species or how we became the dominant species so a tribe which is a team is basically the way we, we became a dominant species on the planet because if we to do think it's you can achieve only so much on your own but if you have a team of people around you or you're working with a team of people you can achieve so much more and this is why as a, a species we, we've achieved so much is because we actually work much more we actually get more done as a team and then they said that that the, the reasons behind or behind all this is or the way that how good tribes because these bad tribes and good tribes 
how to get a good tribe is that a good tribe usually has a mission, a common mission. For me on that project, it was this crazy system we had to implement. You know, this is, this is something we believed it could happen. It didn't exist. Most people said it could never exist, but we had faith it, it would happen. So it was a common mission. There was a purpose. We also had common values. It was a lot of us against them, you know, retesting team against the business analysts and we the testing team against the developers. So there was a lot of team spirit because we were competing against other, other teams. And we also had values because in testing, I think you naturally develop some sort of values. You, you focused on quality. You focused on things working right. You focused on doing a good job because based on your testing, decisions are made. So there's a lot of accountability to the team. They really felt accountable for what they're doing. Um, as we broke down the barriers with the other teams, because we actually got to a, let's say, a next level eventually, they were, they were working really, really well with the other teams because they were trying to find, find a solution. So there was a, a value there. I mean, they weren't just testing the solution, they were actually trying to get that solution working by working with the other teams. And, and this, is, this mission and values is what brings people together. And if you have the, a, a team that comes around a common mission and has similar values, then they reach a level of cooperation that makes them very highly productive. And that's something that happened to me a long time ago in the past, completely by accident. I had no idea what I was doing, but really it comes down to the way we, be, uh, we, we develop. So that's how to build good teams, basically. Um, and a team or a tribe, they say, is between 20 and 150. I don't believe that. I think, I think Agile somehow has it right. I think the best teams were around 10, 12 people maximum, because in a 10 to 12 people team, you're able to build deep and strong relationships because it's the relationships that make the team work. And before you can get to building relationships with anybody, you have to sort of trust them and also feel secure because to build a relationship with someone means you have to be, um, be yourself because people don't build relationships with people who aren't authentic or real. They build people with real people. You, you, your friends, the, the ones which are the most real people for you. So you have to be able to feel yourself, which mean be yourself, which means you have to um, you have to have a feeling of security in the team. Once there's a feeling of security in the team, then people start working well together. They start communicating better, and that with this level of trust that people then can cooperate better together. And if they have the common purpose to actually work on individual tasks to, to, to achieve the common goal. So it's based in our DNA. And once you understand it, you can actually work with it. And the key part of all of it is, or the enabling that is someone who takes a leadership role in the team, not a manager, necessarily it could be a manager but not necessarily a manager but generally in any situation where you get a group of team together somebody generally takes charge if you just think about any situation you're in not at work anywhere you go on holiday with a group of friends and the group of friends stand around saying oh where should we go this morning oh i don't know maybe we should go there maybe we should go there and then somebody says okay what i think is and then they start organizing people and trying to get a, um, a, a sort of like a a, a, a common opinion and, and get alignment on where we should go. So someone usually takes charge. It's quite natural with humans that somebody will take charge. And once and that that person who's who's, who's leading the team, again, better if he's not a person telling people what to do. It's a 
people who's that enabler, who's trying to allow people to have a good time if you're on holiday or in work to actually do a good job and, and feel some value and also to, to build up good relationships and also feel that they're doing something that has a meaning because I think whatever you do in life, it has to have a meaning. You can go to work, you can earn your money, but if it doesn't have meaning, then it, it's, 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 it's basically go find another job. Can I so jump that, here with, with yeah. a question? Yeah. Uh, when you said about the person, the job scene, when you go for a beer and the person yeah. is 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 um, is speaking with the with the team, right? As a, yeah. as a as a leader, the person just to let me understand that person doesn't have to give orders, right? He's more no. like a facilitator. He's he's yeah. as you said, enabler, right? That person yeah. that enables the discussion, makes a safe yeah. space, and also lets yeah. all the voices be heard, right? Yeah, yeah. He's the one who he's the one trying to get the. Cons I was looking for the word consensus. And, okay, imagine we're going for a beer. There's 10 of us, yeah? And three of us want to go to one pub, five of us want to go to a different pub, and two of them want to go to another pub, yeah? So eventually, we'll probably go to the, the pub that the five want to go to. And another five people are no, not so happy about that. But if you, have this, uh, if you have this consensus and you've discussed it, and you've discussed the pros and cons of going to this certain pub, then everyone will accept to go. And they'll commit to going. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll go there. I didn't really want to go to that pub, but you know, the team's going, so I'm going. And that's an important thing to that that facilitator, that leader leader is trying to do. He's trying to get that consensus. And also because if the team relationships are good, then people will commit to the consensus of the team. It's maybe the leader has to get the relationships. Okay, if we get back to a, a, a more corporate or company profile, in, in that situation, you have a team that's not gelling, is not working together well, then your first job as a leader is to get the relationships, to improve the relationships. And when the relationships are better, then you can get people to, to discuss, have their own, uh, give their opinions, listen to other people's opinions, and then come to a consensus about what you should do. And then the whole team will commit to it. Yeah? And when you get the whole team to commit to it, obviously you get the, the accountability that they actually get the job done afterwards. That's, so that's the theory behind that. That, that's true, that you have to have this, this uh, awesome uh, closer. You could say that this leader is a closer. He, well, because you can have a group of very smart people, but yeah. they are around, uh, running around in circles uh, for some reason. So you have to have a person that says, okay, so let's, let's sum it up and make a decision. Go in yeah. one direction or another, right? And, if, so and if, the, if the group cannot make a decision, then the leader has to break the deal. Yeah? He has to want okay. Five of you want to go there. Let's go there. And he makes a decision in the end. He's a deal breaker situation. Yeah, that's that's the I think that's the proper time for the leader to step in and take control and tell people what to do because they can't. They can't. The consensus. The, the group cannot reach a consensus. Then you can step in and say, "So we can do." It. This is theory. It's hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not so easy. If you, if you're in a leadership position and or you're also very strong-minded, like me, yeah. Um, then you don't want to listen to a lot of discussion. You already know you want to go to the pub over there. You don't want to go to the same pub as everybody else. And you really, really desperately want to make the decision for the team. But the good leader is the one that listens to the team and, and tries to arrive at, arrive at the consensus. And it's, for some people, easy, I guess. And for some people, really hard. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. So now I think we can jump to uh, Jorgen to have like a short introduction into developing great testers, right? And we'll try to jump into between these two topics as the questions will arise. I, I can already see that there are uh, at least three questions that go around uh, this topic, but let's go to you, Jorgen. 
Yeah, thanks. Phil, you're a tough act to follow. Uh, so, so Phil has talked a lot about how to, how to create the team and make the team work, but we also need to actually have the right competences in the team to solve the tasks. And, and that's what Phil is doing as a leader is trying to enable those. Uh, and I've, I've been working as a test manager for some years now, and I'll, if I start out with an anecdote as well, uh, I started out as a tester 12 years ago and didn't really know what, what I was going to do. And, but I really like testing. I, I soon found out about that and I did a lot of testing and enjoyed all the technical parts of it. And I even told one of my colleagues at some point that if I ever thought about becoming a test manager, she should uh, hit me to uh, put me back on track. Uh, and uh, somehow I forgot about it and eventually evolved into a, a job or a role as a test manager. And then she came and reminded me, so uh, do you still want me to hit you? And yes, ah, that's a, uh, Let's see how this goes. It seemed like the, the right uh, way to go uh, now. Uh, so that's my background. I've done a lot of work as a tester, uh, got some experience with the team. And now as a test manager, I'm more responsible for, for shaping the new testers we get onto the team and influence how they work and how they interact with the team. So, so a lot of my interest in is how do we actually build the competences? Uh, how, do we, how do we make sure that people perform as testers and identify the right things to, to focus on. Uh, and yeah, we've had a lot of discussions internally in my company about it. And I have uh, this, this thing I'm going to talk to you about is, uh, is an ancient Greek philosopher called Plato. Uh, he has this allegory about the cave and I'm just try, trying to briefly summarize it and then hopefully we can spin it back into something about uh, testing competences. Uh, so bear with me, it's uh, not finished material in any way, but I think there's some interesting ideas to discuss here. Uh, so basically uh, the allegory in the cave is that there's this uh, bunch of people, there's this cave underground, it's dark, and there's a bunch of people sitting in the cave, uh, staring at the back wall of the cave. And, and that's all they can see. They can't move their head and see the others in the cave or anything else. So that's, they're just observing these shadows on the back wall and, and this is their reality. And then the shadows on the wall is uh, produced by people hiding behind a wall, holding up objects. And then the uh, fire at the back of the cave is then projecting the shadows of these objects onto the wall. Uh, so they have some different reality. They have, they can see the physical object, but, but it's not the same thing that the, the people sitting in the cave is seeing. And then eventually if someone were to escape from the cave, <clears throat> then they would see the sunlight and see the objects for what they really are above the ground. Uh, and they would come back to the cave and try to explain to the people down there what they have seen and explain that what the people in the cave are seeing is, uh, is just an illusion. And they would be met with a lot of hostility from the people in the cave because this is their reality and they're sticking with it. And, and this is a topic that sometimes returned to me because when we've tried to teach testers, we've put them on a number of courses and, and I think there's a lot of different realities out there. You know, there's the school represented by Michael Bolton and James Buck that were there last week on the podcast and they have this context-driven uh, uh, talk. Uh, <clears throat> so that's, that's one of the realities predicted onto the wall. And, and 
we have also talked a lot about or used the training courses from TMAP, which is a more formal approach to testing and test techniques and processes for getting through this. And, and that's a different reality. Uh, and, and those are just, you know, yeah, they are concepts there being predicted onto the wall as shadows, but, but the whole tester, the reality of a tester, the one that's living above the earth, he's, uh, <clears throat> he's not one or the other. He's uh, probably a blend of the, of the different elements. I think that's something we need to keep in mind when we talk about great testers, that there's no one recipe for this is what a great tester is. There's a lot of different realities. And those people who are staring at these shadows, they are the ones doing the actual jobs and they need to, to carry out practical work, doing some assignments, and they need to do things that are relevant to them. So they may not care about all the philosophy behind it and what a great tester is or all these thinking, but they have some concrete tasks they need to solve and they need the right skills for those tasks. What a great metaphor, I must say, because uh, when I uh, was firstly studying the ESTQB, then uh, learning to pass my certificate, and at the end becoming a accredited trainer of ESTQB, I always had this feeling that actually it's like a shadow of what a real tester's work is, right? You, you, you learn about all of these boundary values and so on, right? But at the end, you are let, uh, left alone with your computer or telephone or whatever you are testing, right? And it's, you, you have this feeling in yourself that it's something different that was learned like a few months ago on the course, right? So, so there's this discrepancy between the reality, the true reality, and the shadows of, of, of what testing is, which actually is a simulation you have on any testing course. So yeah, yeah, that's, that, that speaks to me. <laughs> so just to, to elaborate a little bit more, some of the things that we have gone through is that, so there are courses, some, some teach maybe the, like the fundamental techniques or analysis or design techniques, and some speak about uh, you know, general approach to testing and mindset and culture and all of those things. Uh, but I think that testers, we, we stand on a lot of, of different pillars. Uh, and I've tried to develop uh, my own mind map for, for test competences. And, and some of the pillars in there is that <clears throat> there's some product knowledge, the product that we're working on. Uh, there's some domain knowledge of what is the, what is the context this uh, product is being used in. Uh, there's some technical skills specific to the technologies that we're working on in, in a certain context or uh, maybe general programming or scripting skills uh, and stuff like that. And then there's a lot of soft skills, uh, communication, uh, reporting defects, reviewing, uh, and then there's some process knowledge. And I think that, that a good skill tester will, will harvest things from all of these areas and, and find uh, ways to improve for all of them and I, I don't think that there's, uh, there's one recipe out there saying okay read this book then you will be a great tester it's a it's a lot of it's a collection of a lot of different things and and you need to explore different areas to to build it and some of it is maybe exclusive to testing and and some of it is you know general skills that can be used for for anything 
It's funny that you're saying that because this is something which I, uh, I'm with which uh, with what I'm tackling for the last like one year uh, around creative testing, which uh, I'm learning, uh, I'm teaching on my uh, workshop. Mm, and I'm, I came to a similar idea that you have to know many different techniques, many different uh, approaches to testing, right? And the more you know, the more creative you can be in your testing um, uh, on a daily basis and the, the better tester you are, right? Because you're learning from different sources and you have these different perspectives, right? So um, uh, thank you, thank you for, for, for that, um, that, um, that uh, uh, insight. Uh, do you have anything else or can we jump into the question part? Uh, let's just dive into the questions. So Phil, what makes a tribe a tribe and how to convert a team into a tribe? Because okay. I believe that there is a difference between a team and a tribe. Uh, no, I think a team is a tribe. Oh, okay. teams, teams work because tribes, because the way we historically or prehistorically uh, created tribes. And how to convert into a team into a tribe is probably, probably a little bit... Um, more complicated. Uh, there's a book called um, Tribal Leadership, I think it's called. I can't remember who wrote it. I still haven't read it. Um, and uh, in there, there's a theory that there's five levels of tribe. And the level one tribe is your criminal gang. Yeah, they don't cooperate very well together. They basically just argue and shoot each other. And they don't achieve anything apart from occasionally robbing a bank, maybe. And Okay, so it's not a, a, entirely... Um, uh, Vin Diesel and his his group, but it's something a bit worse than that. And then this, that's so that's the lowest level of tribe. And in in, in corporate environments or company environments, you hopefully will never meet it. If you end up in jail, you probably meet the the level one tribe. Uh, level two tribe is is people, and I would say this is uh, something you do meet with. You, you may be going to work on a project in a. Um, a state organization to a state uh, like a public sector project uh, certainly in the Czech Republic you will find a lot of demotivated people there yeah and, and basically their, their approach is like life sucks yeah my life sucks yeah they can see other people are getting on and getting ahead and they don't like those people because they're getting on and getting ahead and they just think well it's not going to happen to me if something good happens to them it's luck if something bad happens to them it's fate yeah so they, they don't feel in control and they don't cooperate very well with other people. So this, none of this, this, uh, these uh, advantages you get from people cooperating well. And then there's a level three tribe, which is for me my, outside I'm a level three person. I have to admit this, I'm, I'm a pretty level three person. I mean, I, I went, it, I had my first job in the 80s and, and the 80s were level three. This is the guy who says, I'm great, you're not, yeah? And um, these guys work very well into one-to-one -one relationships, but they don't have the level of trust or the level of um, ability to open and, uh, and be the true selves that they can work in bigger, bigger groups. So they work well one-to-one -one with people they trust or behave probably the same way as they do, but they're not able to develop bigger cooperation. So one-to-one -one cooperation works great. If they get three people, they're stuck. One person then becomes the enemy. Uh, the, 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 uh, the other two will work together. Very political, obviously, that situation you get us and them, uh, very political, you see this, uh, used to see this quite a lot, it's still around. And the level tr four tribe is, for, is apparently the holy grail because the level four tribe is that the team starts to work together. They have the level of uh, trust in each other, 
they are able to be sincere and vulnerable and they start building these relationships and they start to trust each other. And when they have a good relationship, then they can start to openly express their opinions and their ideas without fear of somebody criticizing them. And that's very important that people, people feel secure enough to talk, to, to contribute their ideas. And when they contribute the ideas to the team, the ideas to the team and the team discuss them, um, then that person feels much more value. Yeah? Even though the idea is probably not adopted at the end, at least they know the idea was listened to and discussed and evaluated. Uh, and then they, they're much more, as I said before, once the team makes a decision about what they're going to do, that person will commit to that decision because the team listened to their ideas and listened to their inputs. And they say, okay, I get it. Yeah, I've listened, I've discussed, and they listen to me. I'm going to go uh, commit to this idea. And this is where you get this mutual commitment and the team works on things together. And that's the level four drive, and that's the holy grail. There's an extra level above called the level five tribes, which I don't believe exists because that is something where competition doesn't exist anymore. They don't even com compete with other companies. They, they maybe are trying to, they explain it that, that it's something where you, for example, a uh, pharmaceutical company that has a mission of defeating disease, maybe. That's level five. You have this big, big mission. Yeah? You're going to defeat cancer. You're going to cure cancer. That's your mission. And you're not, you don't care about the other ph pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, they're in the game. You don't care. You have a mission to cure, cure cancer. Um, it's generally very unstable. When you get up there, they, they tend to fall back down because it's not something that humans are good at, not being competitive. We are, I think, a competitive tribe. So to, to eliminate competitive is not, not it. So, and then to get, so you have these very different levels. And the theory is that you can't go from level one to level four if you want to be more productive. You can't get there. You have to go each level at a time. And it does take a long time from go from one level to the next because the first thing you have to do if you're in a level three tribe where people are not open and not able, uh, don't, uh, don't trust each other, then the first thing you have to do is get people to trust each other. And that takes a long time. If, uh, I'm sure many people on this call have probably got somebody in the team who is a doubter, criticizes everybody. It's a problem person in the team. Yeah? And that person uh, doesn't feel safe. Yeah? So they prefer to criticize, prefer to put people down, they prefer to laugh at other people's ideas. Yeah? Or they'll just express their idea and they won't discuss their idea. They'll say, this is what I think, this is what I always did, this is the way to do it. And if anyone says, but, and they say, no, I don't want to listen to your idea. They don't feel, uh, they, they, they're not open to, to that discussion. They, they feel vulnerable if they, if, they, if they feel that they're being attacked, if somebody wants to uh, discuss their idea. So the first thing you have to do is get through this, build up this trust. And then once you get people to cooperate, then you can get up to this level four tribe. And it does take a long time. So that's, that's the leader's role is, is, again, it's an enabler in this. People, if a group of people could achieve that without a leader, I, I'm not so sure. If, if you think about it realistically, I, I'm, maybe it's my, my bias. I'm, I'm a natural lead taker. I've had several psychological tests done. And each and every one says, if you feel that things aren't under control, you will take charge. It says that every time, whatever matter test they take. So if, if I'm in that group of people trying to decide which pub to go to, and I feel the discussion is going on too long, I'll take over the discussion to make sure decisions get made. So, so I feel it's something that happens naturally that a leader steps in. 
I have a similar feeling that the reality and the universe uh, can't stand the void. And if there is a void, lack of leader, there will be always the next in the line. So next person that will take over the leadership into yeah. making some kind of decision. Yeah. So I fully I think, agree. I think, I think human, humankind in general are, are followers. Yeah, we, we tend to want to follow. Yeah, Jürgen, you want to add something? Yeah, it's... Uh... I think it's interesting this whole thing about trust. I think that's uh, pretty critical. Uh, Adam, you sent out a few questions ahead of the meeting that participants had asked uh, when they signed up. And one of them was, what's the main skill for a tester? And I sat down and reflected on that. And I wrote honesty. Uh, and, and that ties pretty closely to trust because I think that if you have the trust, then you you should have the ability to be honest about your work and being able to admit that you did something that didn't work out or that you are don't have the answers to everything here or mm. that, that sort of vulnerability being honest about the limitations of your knowledge. If you can if you can achieve that, then you can also have an open discussion about areas for improvement. If everything is about making it look like you know what you're doing, then then you're not going to move very far. So I think that trust and that honesty is uh, mm -hmm. critical to being able to develop your skills. Yeah. You can't be upfront and open about uh, things that went wrong, but always have to cover your ass if something goes wrong, then, uh, <clears throat> then I don't think you're going to develop very far. So I think it's a quality for the team to have this trust in each other, but it's also a quality in the individual tester to work on being able to open up and being able to admit the mistakes and I think what people will usually find is that when they do that uh, people are pretty receptive and supportive to that so uh, it's just sometimes difficult to take that first step mm. yeah I think it goes uh, a little bit in a in a cycle right so to have the the, the safe space you have to you have to have people that are honest, right? But to have people that are honest and transparent, you have to have a safe space, right? So, so the, the role of a leader here is, is, is really important, right? To break the cycle and firstly create the, 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 the open floor so everybody can speak, them, speak their minds. Um, yeah. One thing that I would like to add finally to, to, to that, um, uh, I've, I thought that, it, I think it's a little bit tricky question about what makes tribe a tribe because I wanted to add something here, Phil. I believe there is enabler that can be accelerator later how to create very quickly or maybe not very quickly, but at least to accelerate the speed of creation of, of, of team. And that is stories. Because to me, what creates tribe, what creates group of people that having uh, have have a, a common co common goal and are feeling their, themselves as as their work um, um, to, towards the, the common goal is common stories right and of course to have these these common stories um, you uh, have to have some history right so it takes some time for, for for once but also having a struggle in your time for example if you have very ha had a very hard tough project for for uh, for for a period of time that also that common enemy creates good stories for later on and yeah. and makes the ties uh, much much um, uh, closer okay i think we can close this question uh, for now um, and then jump to the next one that was the mostly voted uh, on the list and that question is from rakesh 
how to generate business value and um, other than finding critical defects. Uh, Rakesh, are you with us? Uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that question. And, uh, thank you for uh, taking this question on. So what I would like to ask is, uh, I've seen uh, so many QAs tries to generate value, thinking of finding the critical defects, advising the stakeholders about, hey, this is the quality which is there right now. But I would like to actually know exactly where QS can help it, help the teams, other than just finding the critical defects, uh, just uh, advising the developers about the quality and taking some quality meetings. Is there any more ways to generate uh, the business value? Just would like to know more ways how we are implementing in the teams. Thank you for that question, Rakesh. Uh, guys, any thoughts on that? Okay, this is this this is a a very very good question. Um, for me, the the when I usually take senior roles or, or on projects, and what I always how I get my stakeholders to pay attention to testing is to talk about risks. Which, of course, you need, as Jorgen said, you need some domain knowledge. You need to understand the domain, the business domain or whatever. Not understand it deeply, but if you take time to try and understand the business domain and see what for your business and IT stakeholders are the risks and say, I see these risks. Because sometimes they don't want to hear that there's risks, but if they do start to listen about risks, then you say, I can help you mitigate those risks. I need your support. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it worked for me on two very, very big projects exactly the same way. I couldn't get, uh, it usually comes to user acceptance time. User acceptance testing is, is more about diplomacy than testing, I always think. But uh, you go to businesses and say, okay, I'd like you guys to do some testing. They say, no, no, we've got no time, we've got no resources. I say, okay, let's talk about risks. And you can see their faces getting whiter and whiter as you talk about the risks. Just imagine I said that you can't, you can't open the branch one morning because we didn't test the process as it actually works because the testers don't understand your business processes as well as you do. You're the experts. So please help me by coming in and trying things out how they really work. And then, so, and then after that sort of discussion, you tend to get them onboarded and you can even sometimes get them to write test cases, which is a miracle. And even sometimes use a testing tool. So for me, risk mitigation is, is the business value. Uh, uh, identifying risks is one thing and then helping people mitigate them because testing is nothing more in my opinion than risk mitigation yeah you're reducing the risk of some problem being found in production that people are not prepared for and i make a, a distinction there it's not necessary to fix all defects before going live in fact it's a mistake to even try tell people what the defects are how they occur and what to do if they do occur and manage the situation in in, in production rather than trying to go live with some fictional perfect software. I was giving you the, the thumbs up, Phil, because I have very similar, um, well, uh, thoughts, because I work in medical business where mitigation of the risk is like the main thing I'm doing. It's not finding the critical defects. It's, it's mitigating risk and finding the risk, discovering them and 
being sure that the risk were mitigated, right? So my, my role is mostly not finding the defects, but mitigating risks. And I believe there are more, more, more businesses like that. Uh, and I'm looking at you, uh, Jorgen, I'm not sure how much you can share from what you do on daily basis, but basically, basically on what I know what you do and what kind of systems your team is working on. There are many other businesses that also mitigating risks and building the confidence in the software, but because there are kinds of software that must work because human life depends on it, right? There are many businesses like that where, where this is very critical, not finding the critical defect, but building the confidence and mitigating risks. Jorgen, do you have any, anything to share? Yeah, the, that's the line of work I'm in, but I was actually going to uh, go in a little bit different direction. And instead of getting caught up in the business value, then maybe looking at how you as a tester can provide value to your team. And I think finding defects or highlighting risk is definitely one part, but another is just to make the team work more efficiently. If you can, if you as a tester, you have a big, a broader perspective on the system, then you tend to catch some things that the developer is focused on the technical solution and the business people are focused on what is the problem that this piece of software is trying to solve. And by trying to bridge the gap between those worlds and, and keep your eye out for issues where those things are maybe not aligned, then you can bring value by making sure that the team is aligned on understanding what it actually is that they're trying to build. Uh, and there's a lot of small things you can do in the team just to make sure that the team is working efficiently, highlighting dependencies between work that different people are doing. Uh, so I think there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of value to be had by just uh, helping the team work more efficiently and supporting the team. So that would uh, that would be my take on this whole uh, business value on it. That if you are if you are a valued member of your team by your developers or by your architects or product managers or whoever, then then I'm pretty sure that you are also generating value for the business. Thank you very much, Jorgen, for that. Uh, so, Rakesh, uh, would you like to have a follow-up questions on can we mark this one as uh, answered? Uh, yeah, great to hear the insights about the domain knowledge and uh, bringing value as a tester. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to hear noted your thoughts uh, on it. That was an insightful thought. Uh, even uh, I added one uh, for my colleague saying that uh, if you are a great, uh, if you want to definitely add a business value, participate in uh, RBT risk-based testing approaches or participate in the walkthroughs, inspections of the design, make sure that uh, as part of the mitigation process, understand the whole architecture first, rather than just dive, diving into the application, understand the design, go through the requirements, make sure the application is user-friendly. Then uh, you, can you can go through all the other set of requirements which are required for the business. That is one thing I told. Second thing is, I don't want to be explicitly as a white box tester, learn all the code, at least understand the code and say any best practices for writing clean code. So that it's not a tester job to do that, but we can take an additional uh, job of reviewing the developer's code and trying to understand and get more test scenarios. In fact, last night uh, I got three additional scenarios by going through the developer's code. That's what I just did. 
Well, I, I wouldn't say that it's not our job. It's maybe not in our job description, but since our job is the quality and the confidence in the code and so on, so whatever means necessary, whatever we can do to make the code better and the application better and the better quality, that's, that's good enough. Uh, thank you, Rakesh, for this question. I think uh, we can jump into the next one. I will mark this one and highlight the next one, which is on the, on the top of the list. Let me read it out loud and then ask the, the, the person that asked it if would like to add something to the question. How to be a test manager and test lead to yourself if you are just one tester on the team? Hello. Hello, Good. guys. Thank you for this meetup. Uh, it's a question from me. Uh, I would like to add uh, that um, I have been working as, uh, as a tester for five years. And I always work as just one tester on the team. And I have never had any test manager or test lead. And uh, uh, you know that uh, uh, sometimes even I, uh, for now I have experience, but sometimes I don't know what I should do. And uh, uh, thanks for such a chance to ask such questions. Maybe you have some tips or uh, maybe this uh, question is a little bit, uh, uh, not so straight uh, or concrete, but I would like to know maybe you can help somehow what to do, how to learn. If I don't have a person for, uh, uh, who I can ask for questions or something like this. So for sure cooperation in your team works very fine and uh, the exchange of knowledge between the team of one works uh, for sure very well. But I would like to hear from you guys. Maybe now we could start from you, Jorgen. Uh, what's your thought on that? I think it's a really good question. Thank you for that. Yeah, excellent question. I have uh, two different approaches and we'll see which one fits you best. Uh, one is, as a tester, we need some sort of direction on the work we're doing. and and there must be someone on the project who has some answers that they are looking for. So as testers, much of our job is about providing answers. So figuring out what is interesting to product managers or project managers or whoever has a stake in the project and the success uh, of that. So trying to get them engaged in discussion about what you should focus your testing on. That, that, that would be one part of it that, that even though testing is sometimes a little bit isolated. We're not just testing for our own sake. There has to be someone who has an interest in the results that we are finding. So figuring out who those people are and then start to have like informed discussions with them. That, that, that was the one part of it. And the second part is that I think that in order to perform as testers, we really need a network to support us. There's, I mean, for many systems, it's just immensely complex and we can't be expected to know everything uh, ourselves, we're not in, we don't have infinite knowledge. Uh, so having a network we can rely on, figuring out some people that you can talk to, have discussions about, oh, I ran into this uh, issue. Do you have any, have you experienced something similar? Do you know who can help me? And, and building your network for, to, uh, to uh, help you solve these issues when you run into it. I think that's valuable. And I think that a lot of times, if just with five minute introduction, then then someone else will be able to have similar experiences and, and give some guidance on what they have done in a similar situation. So, so building a network, if there's no one else in your company, then start looking outside of your company. There's uh, three of us guys here, and I'm sure that we're all well, uh, open for LinkedIn invitations. So uh, just reach out, find someone that you 
that you connect with uh, and then have those discussions with them. So you just pushed me and feel under the train, but that's fine. That's fine. I'm also very open to any invitation and I believe Phil is also a very open person. Yeah, yeah. So that's well, true. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Reach well, out would, to your community. Yeah, I would just, just like to uh, maybe uh, add a couple of points. What Jürgen said 100,000% right, yeah? Uh, Talk to your stakeholders and, and, and clarify their expectations and get feedback on the work you're doing. I think that, that could help. You, they don't need to be testing experts, but if you talk to your, I, I assume you're in sort of scrum team, agile team, sorry. Um, if you've got a scrum master, I know it's not often these days there's even a scrum master on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an agile team, then, then go and talk to them or go and talk to the product owner is probably the best one to go and talk to in that situation. Uh, and, find, and the other one is to find a mentor however you can, yeah? Even you might find if you work in a very small company, obviously there is no other tester there, but maybe if you're gonna work in a larger company, you might find somebody in the company. And it's sometimes good to have a moan about stuff anyway. Over a glass of wine would even help even more. But I just want to point something out here. A test manager doesn't, may not necessarily help you. Because a test manager is working on I call it high-level bullshit. Yeah, he's taught he's stakeholder management, risk logs, uh, scheduling, working out uh, high-level types of tests. That if you come and ask him a detailed question about whether you should test something like this and like that, if it was me, I would just look at you and say, I don't know. I have no idea. It's it's, too, it's a level of detail. I have a theory that people can't do high-level and detail well in parallel. You, you can do one or the other. Of maybe deep dive. So, so expectations about a test manager, test lead, maybe not the right person. It'd be better to have a fellow tester or to find a mentor who can solve your problem. By the way, I'm the worst tester in the world. I once I, I became a test manager first and started testing later, and I was terrible at it and because I didn't read the specifications. I decided that it was all wrong, and everything was a severity A defect. I didn't last long as a tester. Thank you for that answer, Phil. Uh, uh, to add that, uh, add to that, um, I fully agree with the guys, and uh, would only would like to add to it. First of all, yeah, to underline, uh, reach out to community. There is a lot to see there and ask questions. But also within your company, you never team of one. Uh, even if you are the, the only tester in your team, you have developers, you have business analysts, you have product owner, you have I know many other people with, with who you cooperate, right? And many times I was a tester of one, but whenever I needed some advice on how to test, what to test and so on, I always reach out to, to, to developers, to other guys, right? Um, only on one thing, maybe I would a little bit uh, disagree with Phil, because if you are the only tester in, in the team, you have to be a test manager for yourself. So you have to be the person which Phil described at the beginning, the enabler, the person that, that uh, makes the problems disappear. So the testing problems, if you have problem with test environment, that's would probably normally be problem of the whole team. But if nobody in the team cares about it, and usually developers don't care so much about not working testing environment as testers do that for us, this is the, the, the main part. That's the time when you have to jump into that shoes and go shout on the developer and sit with the developer until the problem is solved, right? So, so of course, then you have to act uh, as your own test manager to solve your own problems. But that's, I would be, I would say the very important and good part of your work because then you develop your leadership skills. 
And that's how I developed my leadership skills by nobody else to help me in my in solving my problems. I had to solve my solve my shit by myself, right? So so uh, I had to go to many different people in the organization to to solve problems with environments, with testing, with time for testing, and so on and so on, right? So you have to be your own test manager. Uh, do you have any follow up on that? Thanks, guys. Thank you for advices. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Dan. And let's jump to the next one on the list that has two, wait, two, um, two likes. Uh, what can a tester do in order to see more real objects and not just one shadow on the wall? I, I think that's really, really good question, especially that I really like that metaphor. I had philosophy in my studies and I, that was one of my favorite subjects. Uh, so uh, who asked this question? Do you have any follow up to, the, to, to this? That was also from you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I I just uh, I have never heard about this metaphor, uh, which uh, uh, Jordan Jorgen. So I'm sorry, I'm terrible with names. Uh, told us, and uh, sometimes I really feel that uh, uh, I don't see the whole picture. And sometimes uh, nowadays it's great that we have a lot of online events, and I can participate, and uh, I can. Uh, uh, I can uh, have a look uh, on how other people understand what is, is testing and uh, what it can be in another way. And I would like to ask you on some tips, uh, something like this, what should I do more in order to, uh, to uh, not to be, uh, uh, not to have this just one shadow on the wall, yeah? What is, test, what is testing and what a tester should do, but uh, to know more about testing and about real objects. Thank you. Yeah, Jorgen, so uh, just making the question shorter, how to take your head and look on the light, right? How to take your sight from the wall to the reality? Do you have any advice on that? I think uh, this, is, this is one of the things where we really get challenged as testers because I think that we need to work on many different abstraction levels that at some point we need to be really detailed and looking at some object but we also need to take a step back and analyze how we are working and how we arrived at our conclusions and reflect on the whole process. So I think that, that being conscious about when we work on different abstraction levels and, and where we need to work on it, that's, uh, that's some thought process uh, that goes into that. And then I think just studying, there's a, there's a lot of free material on the, on the internet. There's a lot of tutorial videos on, on YouTube, uh, Michael Bolton uh, giving speeches and and all of that just figuring out what works for you and I think that by studying and reading about your craft then then you sort to or start to to form a bigger picture and so so that would be one thing to uh, to say okay how can I take a step further back and I think that that they're starting to build some theory or some consensus about what what testing is about uh, even though it's still a uh, sort of relatively new craft. So I think that that would be the one or the things to focus on to, uh, yeah. Look into so, the to the details of how you're working and then to, to uh, uh, yeah, try to take a step back and, and see what you're doing. Uh, 
Thank you. You're going, uh, building up what you said. And in a moment, we'll jump to, to, to Phil because I see that you, you have something to say. But building mm -hmm. up what you said, uh, what helps me, for example, to see not only shadows, but also the light and the reality is going to conferences, for example, right? Even, even though when you take the little bits from the conference, because the talks when they have like 20, 30 minutes, maximum one hour, are only little bits, of reality they still something more because after you get back home even though you didn't cut everything from the talk you at least know the topics and you can google the topics by yourself right so you you can take these little bits put them together in your head and you building the new reality that the reality that that is uh, out there uh, as a bigger picture in your head so so uh, i think that's a that's a really good um, advice from you and the thing of, of on what i can build on right uh, thank you for that, Phil. I'm not sure I'm going to answer the question. When Jürgen was, was uh, in his introduction, I just wanted to add immediately afterwards that uh, we have a lot of junior testers, or we develop a lot of junior testers. We take people with no previous even IT experience. We take people with who seem to have the right um, soft skills, let's say, to be to make good uh, good testers. And it's not all, still it shouldn't always be about technical skills. It's, testing is people work as I keep repeating and hopefully someday somebody will agree with me or uh, not agree with me but uh, will echo me um, and we have the problem that we give them a three-day training course and so this is you know you have a functional specification and you write test cases and then you write then you do some testing and then you write defects and they went on the first ever project and they met reality which wasn't that perfect testing world yeah, and they became quite uh, uh, upset about it because this, this, they realized the projects weren't working the way we described it. And they couldn't do this, these things that they wanted to do. They couldn't even find the functional specification, for example. So and they, were, they were really struggling. So I think the first, the first thing is, is, is to always try and practice what you hear or learn. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit struggling here because I'm, it's something between learning and knowledge that you have to, information you have to turn, you have to practice based on the information you have, and then it turns into knowledge, yeah, which is something you can do without thinking about, or something like that. I, I, I read this a long time ago. If you look up what is, what is the difference between information and knowledge, you'll find some interesting articles on it. And that's that basically turning that, that theory into, 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 into a skill or into knowledge by just practicing it and gaining experience. So we say a good software tester is the one that has a theory and also has some practice. But to get through that, um, uh, disruption phase, let's say, between oh, this theory sounds great, and I'm willing to go out there and do it, and then meet them with the reality. They need a mentor, yeah, to someone to guide them through that transition in, into this real world. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's it's always like that. I can't tell you how many projects I've been on where we never got the functional specification, or the functional specification was bad. They just just to guide them through it that this this reality is actually normality, and they shouldn't be too stressed about it. And you just have to find the right way of working in those environments, yeah, which is using your soft skills in most cases. Go talk to people, get the answers you need. Which is why I say testing is mostly, it's information collection. Most of it, most of it has to be done person to person. So thank probably didn't you. answer the question, but hopefully it was useful. I think it was helpful. Thank you for that, Phil. Do you have any follow-up to us or should we jump to the next one? Okay, so we can jump to the next one. And, and that's, I think, good because we can build a little br bridge between these two, um, uh, this last answer from Phil 
and it's on how to you how do you encourage testers to improve their skills uh, so guys how do you think how do you encourage testers in your teams in your organization to improve their skills and i believe that this is uh, i could add a similar question because uh, then maybe i will jump into it with a little bit with a story uh, so a uh, few days ago i had this uh, like discussion on Facebook group about testing, a Polish, very big Polish uh, group about testing, where people were uh, writing that, okay, when they get out from work, they mainly have their own families and they they, uh, they just don't want to think about work and so on. And I understand that, right? It's good to have that, a good work balance, that's true. But um, I believe that if you want to strive for excellence and be a uh, master in your craft, you have to put so much, so, so, so a little bit more effort than just from nine to five in the office uh, into developing your skills, right? So what I do, I participate in meetups like here. I read articles, as you mentioned, guys, I go to some conferences. And so how can we motivate people that um, this is not only uh, not having a personal life because you still can have personal life, but, uh, but investing some time is something that's worth doing that, right? Investing some time in, in developing the testing skills. What are your advice on that, guys? Maybe we can start with you, Phil. You're, you're smiling, so. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's also a horrible question. If somebody doesn't want to improve their skills, I don't think there's any way in the world you can encourage them. I'm talking about specific skills because some people go to work to pay for what they really love, which might be riding a bike, it might be running marathons, triathlons. They basically go to work, get through the day, so they can get the kit on and go out for that 20 mile run. You'll never encourage those persons to improve the skills apart from maybe the threat of losing their job because their skills aren't adequate enough. So that's forcing persons. So for me, it's got to come from within. If you love testing, then I think you're going to invest in it. Uh, if you love anything, you'll, you'll invest in it. Whatever you do that you love and you really get something out of, it gives you something back, you feel some value in what you're doing, then you'll work on getting better at doing it. So, so how to encourage them, I don't think you can encourage them. If they're not encouraged themselves, then it sounds a little bit weird, but... It's not weird. It's not mm. weird because I agree. It's really hard to uh, to motivate somebody that is not motivated already. Like it's like mm. it's like the answer to to coaching. If you want to uh, want want to work with coach, you actually you you have to want to be coached, right? If you don't want to be coached, then it doesn't work. Coaching doesn't mm. work for me mm. for you. The same goes here, right? You have to have internal motivation. But yeah. uh, Jurgen, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think this uh, also ties into my motivation for the whole uh, talk about Plato is that that if you build a team, then you will have people like Adam who starts his own meetcast and uh, goes to conferences and all of those things. And and what you need to do as a manager for Adam, I suppose, is to just sort of give him a direction, say, okay, maybe it would be smart to look in this direction. And then there are other who are maybe not as self-driven who need to be you know, if there is a need for something specific, then you need to, uh, yeah, support that. And I think that it's probably utopia to think that you can, you can build a whole team full of atoms. Uh, 
so so there will be people that just you wouldn't want the whole team full of Adams. No yeah, way. De definitely, no way. De definitely, you wouldn't want the whole team full of me. <laughs> okay. Before we get uh, too sidetracked, uh, the point is that that there will be these different kinds of people, and and there are value in all those people. So, so if there are specific skills to work on, then you then your job as a manager is to identify where is there, where there is a need for improvement. And then make sure that you do the necessary training for that. Mm. I think the training model we usually go for is that I think 10 or 20% is courses and uh, internal training, etc. And 70% of that is on the job training. And I think there's also a point in that, that, that doing the same thing over and over again is not the same as practicing. So practicing that also involves evaluation. So if you have a skill you need to improve, then you need to identify that this is a skill and then do activities targeted at getting better at that and, and getting feedback on, on your efforts in that. If that's mm -hmm. uh, testing a specific uh, piece of software or writing code in a specific language or you know, doing reviews or facilitating workshops, all of that involves practice, evaluation, and then repeating. Thank you, Jurgen. Uh, I think we can have a follow-up which emerged uh, naturally and uh, I fully agree with you, Phil, that you wouldn't want a whole team of Adams, but uh, can you elaborate why we don't want a full team of, of people of the same kind, right? People that are like highly motivated in some direction or hyperactive or whatever, right? In theory, if you have a lot of highly motivated, hyperactive people, yeah. that work or why doesn't? I believe it doesn't, right? Just to be straight, but, but can you elaborate? Why do you think that it doesn't? Uh, a, a, whole, a whole team full of atoms. Um, well, basically, you'd always be arguing about, you don't want to do the same thing or similar things. So the other work wouldn't get done. And this is why you need the, uh, the, 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 the different personality types on the team, because not everybody likes doing everything. Some people like doing the working with the data, building up the test data and the Excel that likes that sort of detailed uh, logical work. And some people just like having ideas and, and, and having fun, yeah, like you. So, uh, and then some people like, like me, like taking charge and making sure things get happen. And, and, and other people, they're making the team work together well because you have people who are naturally uh, human facilitators, they, 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 get, they have a high level of empathy. I have empathy at 1%. And if I really push hard, I have empathy at 2%. I have a test that proves this. I have no empathy whatsoever, uh, which is, sounds really strange, but I've got other uh, things that compensate for lack of empathy. I've got high observance and other things. So I can work with people because I can facilitate, I can, and so forth, I can observe, but I, I've got no empathy. Yeah, so, so you need those different people. Otherwise, you'd have 12, 12 atoms just fighting over the one, one task and all the other 99 tasks would never get done. Now, also, if, if you have a mix, I, I guess what would be, what I see, because um, we, we do the personality types as part of our soft skills training, and you do see that the opposites do have a problem with each other. And if there's too much of, if you're in a team, these are colors, yeah, the blue, red, yellow, green, that's basically Young's personality types, basic ones. So if you've got too many red people in team, the green ones really suffer because uh, they get pushed around too much. Yeah? If you get too many yellow ones in team, 
then everybody gets tired because it's just too much energy the whole time. It wears everybody else out. So, so you also have to have a balance from the personality types to, to find a, a nice blend. You need the yellow, you need the green, you need the blue, you need the red, but in a good mix if you can. I know it's perfect world. Utopia doesn't exist. But if you have too much of one thing in the team, it, it, the team won't work very well. That's true. I also believe in diversity. You have to have diversity in your team to have uh, different approaches, different perspectives, and different kind of skills that are needed in different different moments in the project, right? So, mm -hmm. so I have uh, a, a similar insight. Uh, thank you, guys. I will not ask Andras if this is enough for him because I believe he's not with us. Maybe he asked the question offline. Uh, and uh, now we have uh, a last question from the list from Anonymous. Um, the question is how to check work of the test team in order they do not think that you do not trust them or micromanage them, but you need to know how is it going. Yeah, I, I have similar problem, right? How to, from one perspective, know that things happen and they go into right direction, but from other perspective, not let them feel that they are micromanaged. Uh, person who asked that question, do you want to have some uh, some follow up? Ah, that's ah. again you. Great. <laughs> Great. I have never been in such positions that I should ask my team, but it's uh, I always want to know how it should be done in correct way. If one day <laughs> I'll be on such a position. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe now we can start with Phil. This is, the, we need to have a whole new webinar for this one. This is a fantastic question. And something that's very, very difficult to do. Very, very difficult. Because this is part of, this is like part of delegation. And the hardest thing to do as a leader or as a manager is delegation. It's, you can read a hundred books about it. It's very, very difficult to do well. And it's one of the most important things to do or to, to, to do well. Um, my approach, my simple approach to this is uh, I don't like micromanagement. I don't have time for micromanagement. I hate micromanagement. Yeah? I like my style of delegation is you there, go do this. And, and, and then I don't say anything else. That's, that's my delegation style. So I go to a random person, give them random task and expect them to do it. And then I'm thoroughly disappointed that I go and find that person three weeks later and say, hey, that guy didn't get back to me. He did, did he do it? Did he not do it? Yeah? And, um, and I got to say, yeah, did you do this task? And he looks at me and says, oh yeah, but we didn't say by when I should do it. Uh-huh, okay. And I wasn't really sure what you wanted. And what did you expect? What should you look like when, you, when, I, when I finished it? Should I, should I come back to you in the meantime? And, and that's your mistake at that point because you're the one doing the delegation. It's not the person's mistake. So I used to get really, really angry. I used to get very frustrated and annoyed and disappointed in people. And basically my simple tricks now are, and it's, I say simple, but it's taken me two years to learn this. Always set a deadline. And always get the person to repeat back to you if they understood what you want. Because based on that, you'll realize you've not explained it properly and you can explain it again. So really try and be clear about what you want, how it should look, and when it should be delivered. And if you're not sure about the person, to avoid micromanagement, say, and could you say, okay, can you do this within the next two weeks? But could we maybe meet next week and we can have a look at it together? And then you can just see the progress. Yeah? And that avoids the micromanagement. So, but really, really, the, the, one of the magical things is to set the deadline. If you don't set the deadline, you get nothing. 
really you have to say and it sounds it's horrible to do i hate it i said but could you do this for me and and could you do it by next week and that that could you do it by next week breaks my heart because i feel i'm being horrible to people yeah, I'm, I'm making demands on them yeah that they have to do it by a certain deadline but otherwise they don't do it and then you might break their spirit by blowing up and being angry with them and shouting at them as a result of your failure to uh, delegate the task properly so there's a very good book called um I think it's called Situational Leadership, which uh, Situational Leadership, I think it's called, no, One Minute Manager. It's called One Minute Manager. And it's, it sounds easy on paper, but it's very, very hard to do. And you will spend the whole of your life learning how to do it. It really is difficult, delegation. And the different styles of delegation, because micromanagement is just one style of delegation, which sometimes you have to use. I'm finished. I'll Thank you, Phil. For hours. Thank you, Phil. Uh, Jorgen, what's your take on that? Uh, I, I heard something a little bit different, so I, my answer might go in a slightly different direction. Uh, but this is something we've discussed a lot internally on, on how to do that. So, so when we, for instance, write new test cases, then we have reviews. Uh, we have reviews of all our documentation to ensure that we have the, the two spot any glaring mistakes. And, and that goes back to this having a trust culture and having a culture where feedback is a natural thing. So that if I write something, then I encourage people to give me feedback on that because I know that they will see things that I'm not seeing. Mm. Uh, so, so I think if you can establish that and saying that we all need this feedback from others because we can't, we can't see everything and we need others perspectives to spot the glaring mistakes. If you can, if you can incorporate that in your way of working, saying that it's, it's a natural thing that that we do these reviews and that all of us get feedback uh, or reviews of the things that we're doing, no matter how experienced we are. And I think that that can also break this, that, that we are doing these reviews or follow-ups as a control mechanism, but just a collaborative effort in the team to, uh, to catch the mistakes and make sure that we are pulling in the same direction. I think that that's one of the things that, that we have sometimes struggled with a little bit uh, that that people see it as they now now they are being uh, looked closely at, but that's not the that's not the point of it. And and we have a saying I don't know how to translate that, but something like that we're playing the ball that that we are not trying to tackle some person for the job they did. We are trying to solve the task and focusing on on the end result and and whatever happens to get there, then that doesn't matter as long as the product uh, is the right one that comes out of it. So, yeah, a little bit different approach to the question than Phil took, but I hope mm -hmm. that this uh, mm -hmm. adds some perspective as well. Okay, thank you, Jurgen, for that. Thank you, Phil. Uh, what I would add that uh, it depends, as typical consultant <laughs> say, it depends, um, because it depends how much flexibility as a test manager or manager or people manager or just QA lead, depending on your role in the organization, how much, um, uh, how much control do you have to have or how much information do you need to have? And I would say that it's like a spectrum. And on one point, I would say approach, which is described, I would add one book, which I really like, is Turn the Ship Around. Uh, by David Marquette. Uh, at the end, I will post all the names of the books in the description of the podcast, right? 
So the book Turn the Ship Around is about a captain of a submarine. Uh, so in military, normally you have a lot of micromanagement and giving orders and so on. Uh, and he was a captain of a nuclear submarine. He was learning about the submarine to be a typical captain of that submarine. So he knew everything about that boat. But two weeks before taking ownership of that boat, um, it was changed and he was given the, the being a captain of completely different ship. So he didn't have knowledge uh, to give orders on that ship because he didn't know that ship. He didn't have time to learn about it. Like a typical situation with manager, right? Managers usually don't know a lot, especially if they were appointed uh, from different organization or different project, right? And then he had to change approach, uh, not giving orders, not micromanaging, but the people were giving a kind of orders and he was just approving them or not, right? So um, he was only giving intent and people there were saying, okay, so captain will turn ship 20 degrees left or right or whatever, right? And he said, very well, right? Uh, so he, he was not the person that was giving the orders. He was just the person approving the orders that was coming from the crew, right? But this is organization maximum on one side where you actually don't manage very much. You don't have much control because the control is in, the, in, in your team and you're just approving that kind of control, right? And there's another part another, of the spectrum where you have to have a lot of control. And I would say in some organizations, like in my organization where I work, uh, which works on medical devices, and uh, there are many projects that are intertwined together, right? Uh, that are many dependencies, you have to have some level of control because people on the level of the team wouldn't be able to synchronize all the actions that take, take, um, take um, all, all the things that take action in different parts of your organization. So, so you have to have some level of control. And how to make a feeling of that you're not micromanaging your team, in my opinion, is a complete transparency about why you're asking your team to give you this information, why you're asking your team to report to you about something and something, right? So I'm not saying, uh, let me know when you are done. I'm saying, let me know when you are done because on this task, there are 10 other teams that are relying and they need this information. Because if I would say to him, let me know what, when it's done, then I'm micromanaging him, right? I, I just, I'm just uh, looking at your work, looking at your hands wh when you are working. But when I'm saying, let me know what's it done, because there are these three teams that are waiting for your work and uh, they are dependent on that work, then this, the, the, the person that is uh, doing the task completely understand why it's done, right? That can come from different book by, by uh, Simon Sinek, uh, start with why, right? So you have to start with why with your team to let your team understand what, why they are doing this, this, these things and that you're not asking uh, for this information just because uh, you want to micromanage them, but you're asking about this information because it's really important to you, to the organization, to other teams and so on and so on. And this gives you like additional uh, value because actually people can perform their task even better when they know uh, how it's measured and why it's measured and why it matters to the rest organization because they understand the, the, the underlying, uh, the, the, the things that are uh, underlying that, that decision, that task that we are doing. And that would come from me. Uh, guys, would you like to add something to that? No, a good point to, to explain the context of anything. It, it, it really helps people to understand why you're asking the question. 
Great. Uh, Violetta, do you have any follow-up question? No, oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Great. Uh, I don't see any more questions on the question list, uh, but I also can see that we are slowly approaching the end of the midcast. Mm -hmm. So, guys, I have last question to you, and I think it's really nice that um, a nice question to ask on every midcast. It's uh, it appeared on the last one. Uh, what books? We already had some book titles, but what books could you recommend? Uh, to the testers that want to develop their skills as uh, managers but also as a testers, right? So now, guys, uh, the floor is yours. What do you think? We can start this time maybe with you, Jorgen. What books could you recommend for testers to develop their skills? Oh, that's uh, terrible because I uh, actually find most of my inspiration from sports biographies. So uh, I tend to look a little bit outside of the testing world. Oh, that's man. great. That's great. Give the title outside. I think it's really great to look outside of your domain to, to get some inspiration. So what could you recommend? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of American football, so I've read everything about the New England Patriots, basically. I think they have a head coach who's uh, good at teams, and he has some pretty simple advice that I tend to follow. Things like, do your job which is focus on the things or focus on things that, that you can control. So I think that, that there's a lot of you know, inspiration to be had from the sports world about leadership and building a performance culture. And yeah, I don't have one book that I'll point specifically at, but uh, it's, uh, it's in that domain that I find a lot of my leadership experience. Good advice. I, uh, my inspiration came from military, right? So sports is like another domain from where we can read a lot about how to build great teams, how to integrate people and work uh, towards the one common goal. Thank you for that, Jorgen. Uh, Phil, do you have any, some, uh, any titles you could recommend? Two, I two probably. Uh, first one, in general, I would strongly recommend reading Mindset by Carol C. Dweck. It's the way to understand how people improve or how you can change your mindset so you're open to improvement which is to uh, accept that you will screw up and you will make mistakes and then learning going through the painful process of learning from the accepting you've made a mistake and then going back into the, the learning loop that that was a, a key one for me i think that was something that changed my life and um and the other one for, for any sort of team sort of situation it's it's a classic book. Whatever you read on the internet about teams and about dysfunctional teams and dysfunctional people in teams, it all comes from, I guess, or it seems to come out of a book by, um, let me think, Patrick Lancioni, Lencioni, and it's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And that uh, deals a lot with the, um, with the vulnerability aspect to, to how to get the team to... Uh, uh, to be, or let's say that the vulnerability in the team has to start with the leader. The leader has to be the one that shows he's he's human, makes mistakes, he's vulnerable, is willing to admit he's made mistakes, and then gradually he can get the rest of the team to start feeling safe because they know that the guy who makes mistakes is not going to be so critical if they do a mis mis make a mistake, and then eventually be able to start building up to this level four holy grail type team. So I say that was a key book, and if you read anything around that, then it all ties into that book. Okay, I heard about the last one, but I haven't read it though, but I can see that. Uh, actually, I would recommend if you just go on the YouTube, 
You'll find Patrick Lezioni. He's got a few uh, lectures there, and you'll get the whole thing from the lectures. And he's a, as a he's a really really good performer. It's a very a good forty minutes watch on YouTube. I can maybe send you a link to one later afterwards. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's great. That's great. Uh, thank you, Dan. So I believe that this is all for today. We uh, are past one minute after time where we should finish the the, the midcast. So I believe that's uh, really great. Thank you all for participating. Thank you all for great questions. And especially thank you to you guys for sharing your knowledge, your experience with everybody that were here today. Uh, as I promised, I will write down all the books uh, in the description. So uh, the, the suggestions you made guys uh, will appear in the description of the podcast. I will shortly also after the meeting, we'll um, disconnect the, the recording and in i think in the next two weeks it will appear on uh, spotify itunes and any podcast um, medium that you are listening to um, as guys also mentioned you can find us on linkedin and i know that uh, that phil and jorgen are very friendly i can uh, can ensure you that i'm also a very friendly person so you can always ask me questions especially you Violetta who asked question about the shadows I think I can send you some links or inspiration so find me on LinkedIn I will share some 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 thoughts with you and then you can develop yourself as a as a better tester uh, that's it from me uh, guys Phil uh, Jorgen would you like to also say say something to our listeners yeah, so I, I, it, it was great fun. Uh, the questions were fantastic. Really, really, it was. I was a bit worried that we'd be monologuing and, and, and just moaning on, but the questions were fantastic. And thanks very much. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, we said something that was relevant and interesting and hopefully useful. Thank you, Phil. Jorgen. Yeah, I'm completely on board with Phil. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for putting up with my ramblings about uh, Plato and other things. So, uh, looking forward to catching you guys online some other time. Uh, be good. Thank you, Jorgen. I really love metaphors coming out from philosophy. And uh, in, I think, previous Eurostar on which I was, there was one guy which talk I didn't participate. It was about Emmanuel Kant into testing. I haven't been on that talk, but I, I really regret it because the description was, was uh, really inspiring. And I think there is a lot of knowledge that we, that we can gain from other domains, sports, military, philosophy, and whatsoever, right? That can come out to our domain um, when we are testers. So thank you one more time and see you on the next Midcast. Bye guys. Bye bye.